Amen. Thank you, Tom. Tom. Well, we are, we're supposed to be coming to the end of our series on 1 Timothy today, but I decided to extend chapter 6 into two sermons. It was just uh, too much to cover in one. So we're going to be in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, uh, verse 2b, or the second part of verse 2, uh, going on to verse 10. Then next week, Lord willing, uh, we'll be in verse 11. But we're talking today about... We're talking today about our vision of Jesus-centered stewardship. Jesus-centered stewardship. And the great thing about the scriptures is the scriptures cover all different topics. Uh, They cover marriage, they cover parenting, they cover outreach, they cover relationships within the local church. Uh, They cover dealing with money and contentment and stewardship and all of these different subjects. And today we're going to look specifically at when it comes to stewardship. And the scripture has much to say about it uh, right here. When you think about it, friends, we are perhaps some of the most blessed people, some have said, some of the most blessed people when it comes to resources, perhaps that have ever lived on this planet. I've heard it said, friends, that if you make $35,000 a year, which is a low income, most people would say, you are part of the 1% of the richest people on the planet. Did you know that? (laughs) Oh, we have a lot, to, a lot to be thankful for, a lot to steward back to God. I think about it. First of all, you already won the lottery, okay? Um, how did you win the lottery? You were born in the United States. This is the first thing, okay? If you're born in the United States, you already have resources that are more abundant than most people have had throughout all of human history and certainly throughout all of the world. So second thing you, you won the lottery is you were born in the 21st century, You weren't born 300 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. You were born now. You have health care usually within a half hour away. That is an incredible blessing. As I mentioned, a number of our folks in our church have learned very much so recently, have experienced recently the blessings of the health care that we have available to us is incredible. We have been given resources. We have cell phones we have smartphones. Think about that. Even a generation, less than a generation ago, if you wanted to call someone, you had to find a house or a payphone. And for anyone here who is under 20, a payphone was this little thing that would be on the side of the road. And you'd have to put a quarter in it and pick it up and actually dial numbers onto it to make a call. A totally different world than we used to live in there. We have jet airplanes. <laughs> if you want to go and travel to the other side of the world, you can do that. Like a group of us are hoping to go to Israel uh, in the beginning of July. We're going to get on an airplane that will literally fly us across the Atlantic Ocean and we'll be there by the same day or maybe by the next day because of the hour difference uh, ahead. Uh, we have been, in some sense, friends, given incredible resources by being born here and by being born in the 21st century. But then you think about us specifically, this group of people sitting in this room and the blessings God has given us. He's given us a rich history as a church family, 253 years. He's given us this incredible facility that the people who were part of this church for generations in the past have left for us to inherit. He's given us an amazing church family, amazing staff, great elders. He's given us a lot to now steward back to him. What are we going to do with all of the blessings that he's poured out to us? Are we going to use it for his glory? Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting at verse 2, going on to verse 10. We'll have it on the screen as well. We read this. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine 
and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. A Jesus-centered community stewards its resources. Stewards its resources. Look with me. There is an outline in your bulletin, again, if you'd like to follow along. It may be helpful, and certainly if you would like to take notes. But we're going to talk about what the Scriptures actually teach about stewardship here from the Scriptures. The first thing we see is bad theology leads to an unhealthy view of money. Bad theology leads to an unhealthy view. Look what he starts off. First of all, he encourages them to teach and urge these things. Remember that Timothy was left there in Ephesus. Paul entrusted Timothy, even though he's a fairly young man, probably in his 20s. Paul left him in Ephesus, a pretty major city in the ancient world, and said, I want you to basically take care of the churches there. I want you to oversee them. And I think Paul very much knows what he's doing. He's saying, I'm, I'm raising up the next generation. He leaves. He writes two letters to Timothy. This is the first one. Second Timothy, of course, is the second one. And he entrusts certain things to them, knowing that there are problems in Ephesus. It's not by any stretch a perfect church. There are false teachers. There's false doctrine. And Paul wants Timothy to deal with it. Because if Tim, Paul dies tomorrow, he can't come back and deal with it himself. He wants Timothy to be ready, so he tells him, teach and urge these things. What I'm going to say next is very important for you to not only know yourself, Timothy, but are you going to take this and actually impart this to the local churches? So, assumedly, he's traveling around Ephesus, stopping into the local churches. He's getting up there in the pulpit or whatever they have uh, there in front of the whole church, and he's teaching them different things. And he warns them, he says, if others teach a different doctrine, so a, a false teaching, something that is not in line with the Christian faith. He describes it in two different ways here. First, it doesn't agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the first mark, I think, of false teaching. Does it agree with Jesus? So they probably didn't have um, a papyri of the entire book of a gospel of Mark or Luke or John, uh, but they may have had fragments or they may have had um, heard the stories and oral traditions. Certainly the apostles are teaching them. They know what Jesus actually taught. And he's saying, if what these people are teaching doesn't line up with Jesus, you have a problem right from the start. That's the problem with this false doctrine. Does it line up with Jesus? And the same is true for us today. If you hear this new teaching, and you hear it, it doesn't seem to line up with what Jesus actually taught, you should have a problem with that doctrine. It doesn't line up with what Jesus himself said. But more than that, not only does it not agree with the sound words of Jesus, he says it doesn't also accord with godliness. In other words, that teaching doesn't actually lead to a changed life of following Christ. It doesn't lead to a spirit of holiness, of, of godliness. It leads in a different direction, a not good direction. Uh, that's another clear 
signal that something's wrong with the doctrine. Uh, you could have, theoretically, I guess, uh, you could have a teaching that, it, for the most part, is faithful to what Jesus has said, not entirely, obviously, but does not lead to godliness. Uh, that is antinomian, for example, that is anti-law, that it basically says it doesn't matter how you live, you're free in Christ, go ahead and sin all you want. Uh, friends, so there are those, he said these are the two tests. First of all, does it line up with Jesus himself and what he taught, what he did for us? And second, does it lead to godliness, to a Christ-like life? And of course he's saying it doesn't. He begins to describe the effect of this false teaching on the church. Look what he says in verse 4. First of all, they puffed up with conceit. And they're ignorant. They understand nothing. It's led to arrogance. It's led to an unhealthy craving for controversy. It's led to quarrels. It's led to envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constantly being suspicious of other people. It's led to friction among the church. It's led them to divisiveness. So this false teaching, not only does it not accord with Jesus, not only does it not lead to godliness, but it's led to divisions within the church, infighting within the very congregation. Friends, that's another, I think, clear sign. Something's wrong with the teaching, or something's wrong uh, with the church, if there's lots of infighting, if one group is, in, against, is sort of gathering people to its side, and it's against another group, and uh, we have a problem. That is not a healthy church. That is not healthy teaching. Healthy teaching would lead to, of course, a spirit of unity, as we've been saying. Uh, we looked at 1 Corinthians, which said that if somebody is uh, divisive, that's a clear sign of spiritual immaturity. doesn't mean they're not a believer, but if somebody is constantly looking to divide, that's a sign of spiritual immaturity. They need to grow up and seek the unity of the church. But he says one more thing, and he sort of ends his description of this false teaching with this. In verse uh, 5. They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, what they're saying is they, they see Christianity, or this new teaching, as a way to profit. And what he means there is to financially profit. <laughs> they see this as a money-making machine. These local churches filled with these generous people who are kind and loving are an easy target to get wealthy. And friends, over 2,000 years of church history, we've seen this play itself out again and again. We've seen it certainly in false teachers. There are people who look at the church and say, here's an opportunity to get rich. Here's an opportunity to make some money, whether through sort of fleecing the sheep, taking money from the church, or using it as an opportunity to market themselves. And certainly people do get wealthy all the time. Even today, we see it. Certain teachers, televangelists, and so forth get extremely wealthy from the church. They see godliness as a means of personal gain. But it's even in the teaching itself sometimes. So we have what's sometimes called prosperity gospel. Uh, the teaching that if I'm faithful to God and I do what God has asked me to do, and then I'm going to be healthy and I'm going to be rich. So that's the motive that people are using. They're saying, you've got to be faithful to God so that you can get wealthy. And more than that, they would even flip that on this other side, which gets even more dangerous. If you're not wealthy and if you're not healthy, that's because you must have been unfaithful to God. So send me a check and then you can get healthy again, right? That's kind of the idea behind it. It's right built into the teaching. And sadly, we've seen it again and again. Looking at godliness as a means of gain. And don't get me wrong, it's also the other side. 
Um, I think we see that as, as well. People have had a wrong view of money going off. Uh, Luther said you can fall off a horse on two sides, right? And in one sense, that's one way. And the other side is to view money as evil. And that any use of money is evil. That we should all take a vow of poverty. And it should reject the idea that money can be used for good. Uh, we see that as a problem too. It happens often. I was reading uh, Dave Ramsey in uh, his uh, book Legacy Journey. He describes a meeting he had with a good Christian businessman. Uh, the Christian businessman that previous year had given away $500 million. Five hundred, so you could probably guess who it is. There's not too many businessmen in that category that could, could do that. But then he said he was going for a ride with them and the Christian businessman said he had to apologize for his car. He said, well, what's wrong with your car? Are you driving a junker? There's nothing wrong with that. I'm, you know, Dave Ramsey recommends, recommends driving a junker if you need to. He said, no, it's really nice. And he gets into it, he gets in this really beautiful new car. He said, well, after I gave away what I did last year, I decided to treat myself and buy a new car. And I've received hate mail. <laughs> Say, you could have used that money to give to missions. You could have used that money to give to the poor. Uh, Ramsey calls it the war against success. So it's, it's not the idea that wealth is evil and any use of it is evil, but are we stewards who use it for good? Bad theology leads to an unhealthy view of money. What's a healthy view of money? That it all belongs to God. That we're stewards who are called to use it for His glory. Recognizing that in the end, as we'll see in a little bit later, it all goes back to Him anyway. None of it comes with us. I think it's important, friends, when I think about our church and I think about what the future of our church looks like, I, I hope our church has generous people. I hope we have people who are regularly giving and tithing. And, and I, I just want to say that if we have any visitors here today or, uh, or you're relatively new to the church, we don't talk about money all the time. <laughs> just, just wanted to, do, to, to let you know, um, especially our regular attenders, if you came with somebody, let them, ask them. They'll tell you. We don't talk about money and giving all the time, but when it's in Scripture like it is right here, we talk about it. So if, if we're talking about marriage in Scripture, we'll talk about marriage. If we're talking about giving because it's in Scripture, we'll talk about giving. Whatever happens to be in the Word, uh, that's what we look to to discuss. We want to be faithful to the whole picture of Scripture. But the Bible does call us to regular, generous giving. Uh, I have a picture of the uh, Jerusalem Temple there, the Wailing Wall. So um, I'm hoping to be there in July. Right, Mitch? That's the plan. <laughs> All of us. Actually, I think our hotel is within walking distance of the Wailing Wall. So at night, when it's a little bit cooler, we've got some time, walk down to the Wailing Wall and spend some time there. That would be great. But what was the purpose of a tithe? The tithe was given to the temple uh, for the ministry of the local church. Uh, excuse me, for the ministry of the temple, for the ministry of the sacrificial system, uh, for the ministry of the Levites and the priests who were bringing people in worship to God and bringing God to people, in a sense, through the teaching of his word. Well, friends, that... Jesus doesn't say that that's over and done with. Actually, he says the opposite. He, as we mentioned earlier in the video, uh, he commends the Pharisees for at least being faithful in that area. So you handled that area right. That was good. Uh, continue to do that. That's not a bad thing. Uh, continue to be faithful, but you're not faithful when it comes to justice and mercy and kindness. Be faithful in both is what he's saying. Now, what does that mean? Though we don't have a, a temple today, do we? Yes, we do, actually. The temple of God is his people, is his church. That's where we remind each other of the sacrifice of Christ. That's where we bring people to worship of God and bring God's word to his people. So are we still faithfully following his command to generosity? And I would just encourage the members of our church in particular. Uh, are you faithfully serving and giving uh, to the Lord and giving to his church going forward? We want to be faithful in this area and see how the Lord uses that uh, going forward.
We're called here to have a good view of all the resources God has given us. Not a view that God is after our money as if money is the primary thing and the most important thing in our lives. Not a view that money is evil and that we should all get rid of it and that success itself is a bad thing. But a view that God himself is the owner of everything. And he, by his grace, has put us as stewards of a lot of things. And we want to use that for good. And that's true of us as a church, corporately. God has blessed us with a lot of different uh, resources. He's blessed us in so many different ways. And as we trust Him and as we follow Him, God has been faithful and shown His faithfulness to us again and again. And when we're faithful in this area of the resources He entrusts to us, He tends to bless us. Now, I don't say He always blesses us financially, but He does bless us as we follow Him. And one of the things I think has been so encouraging for me as a pastor, is the perspective I get to watch God's faithfulness in this area. Uh, I just need some neat things. I was just sort of recounting um, his faithfulness to us in this area over the last, let's say, five years, ten years, five to ten years. And it's just neat to see how the Lord provides. Uh, First of all, uh, I've mentioned this before, but at one point, I think it was about seven or eight years ago, um, we started receiving $5,000 anonymous checks in the mail. We still have no idea where they're coming from. So I, I, don't, I don't know where they're coming from. They come a couple times a year. Um, we, we, we received our first one while we were in the process of restoring the sanctuary. And it was a truly a godsend at that point in time. Um, as we were also uh, looking to repair our sanctuary, uh, one of a uh, long-term sweetheart member of our church, Martha Metcalf, passed away. And her daughter uh, gave the church a significant amount of money to help us make sure we could fully restore this facility. We were able to sell the Newcomb Street facility because of the merger with our brothers and sisters from Haverhill Community Church, which allowed us to fix our fellowship hall, pave the corner lot, upgrade the AV. We installed a new heating system, which literally saved us tens of thousands and enabled us to knock down the Malcolm building, which was becoming a a safety hazard, and the Lord provided there. Uh, I love to tell the story about the, the neighboring property. Uh, that was being demolished because it was dilapidated. Uh, one of our neighboring sort of uh, multifamily homes, um, as they were doing it, they uh, broke one of our windows in our, our kitchen. Uh, we were in the process of trying to restore uh, our, our fellowship hall. Broke one of the windows in the coldest night of the year. <laughs> Froze our pipes and ruined our floor. Well, here's the neat thing. Uh, we had money to basically fix up the fellowship hall with everything but the floor. So now, our floor is completely ruined, and our insurance kicked in, we were able to fix our floor by God's grace. And uh, if anyone works for an insurance company, I'm telling you, we did not do this on purpose, for sure. It was the Lord's provision in in a special way. Well, it so happens that the place that they were demolishing was going to Habitat for Humanity. Uh, Habitat for Humanity said, we want to build a new home here for, that's what they do as a ministry. The city said, we don't want a new home there. So Habitat said, you know what? We don't like to fight with the city. It's just not our way. There's a church adjoining. Hey guys, would you guys like the property? And they gave it to us free of charge. So not only did they knock down the building that would be on our future property to give us a new floor, but they actually gave us the property that they were knocking down. The Lord's neat provision. Uh, We were, by God's grace, able to uh, sign a contract with SBA to pay off all of our mortgage debt that we had accrued uh, for doing some repairs on our our, our church. Not only were we able to pay off our debt, but fix the front stairway and uh, a a roof that was falling apart, and the Lord provided it. The Haverhill Courthouse needed to uh, repair, as you can see if you're from Haverhill, they've been doing repairs there for a while. Well, they needed parking by law. They have to have parking, not non-street parking. So they approached our church and said, hey, can we rent your parking lot for a season? 
And the Lord provided so we could meet our budgetary needs uh, supernaturally. We received amazing one-time gifts from different families. Uh, and just recently, as you, if you come to the budget meeting, you'll see uh, we received real estate taxes, kind of an un, a, a surprising benefit to us of about 15 grand, which is going to help us meet our budget for the upcoming year. Uh, the Lord continues to provide, sometimes in amazing and supernatural ways. Now, don't get me wrong. We want to be faithful <laughs> to plan well, budget well, and trust the Lord at the same time. So, but it's a wonderful thing to watch as we put our finances in His hands and trust Him to lead us forward. Bad theology leads to an unhealthy view of money. Good theology sees ourselves as stewards who trust the Lord. Look at verses 6 to 8. Contentment is a powerful blessing for Christians. A powerful blessing for Christians. Look what he says in verse 6. Yes, it's true that uh, they see godliness as a means of gain. But he says in verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Now what he means by that is not great financial gain. He's saying that godliness in itself is actual gain. Here's a quote from uh, one scholar who, in talking about this. We can get that up there. Godliness is not the means to financial gain. Godliness is the gain. Uh, Such godliness is not a means to something else more valuable it is supremely valuable all by itself. Now, why is it valuable? Because as he says here, it leads to contentment. Uh, it leads to a recognition that God has provided all that we need and we can trust him for it. We brought nothing, he quotes verse 7, he kind of refers to Job. We brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of the world either. How true is that, friends? When you came into this world, you were a crying, whining little baby uh, whom the doctor gave a good smack in the butt to. And you had nothing on, <laughs> nothing on your body and you had no possessions to your name. And when you leave this world, friends, you will take nothing with it as well. Remember that. Now, there's the old story about this one guy who had his collection of gold coins. And he loved his collection of gold, gold coins more than almost anything in this world. And so but he was a Christian and he followed Jesus. So he begged God, God, just one prayer request, one special prayer request. Can you let me take my collection of gold coins with me to heaven? And he just begged the Lord. He said, I believe in Jesus. He's my savior and all that. But, but I just really want my bag of gold coins. It would just be one special blessing. And so eventually he dies and he finds himself in heaven. And he looks down. And he's got his black, black bag full of gold coins. And he can't believe it. The Lord let him take his bag of, of gold coins. And he walks up to the pearly gates and Peter sees him, supposedly, you know. And Peter says, what do you got in the bag? And he opens it up and he says, why do you have a big bag of cement? Look at, <laughs> look at the streets made of pure gold. <laughs> what value would it be even if you could take it with you? It's a good reminder to us all. We brought nothing into the world and at the end of the day, we take nothing out of this world either. If we have food and clothing... With these, we'll be content. Uh, really, that's the only true necessities of possession when you think about it. Uh, the word for clothing there literally means covering. Uh, so some people say it probably could uh, certainly uh, extend to a shelter of some sort. I mean, if certainly clothing may not be enough if you live in a, uh, an environment that is you know, frozen tundra. Uh, but you need covering to survive. You need food and food to survive. But above and beyond that, All of it is just possessions above and beyond. Friends, I I love what he says here, that contentment is really the goal, isn't it? Uh, If you're content, 
It doesn't really matter how much money you have. In fact, they say one of the great uh, tricks, one of the great snares in life is to believe that money will bring you happiness. And the funny thing is that study after study shows this is not true, right? Study after study shows that money is not going to actually bring you happiness. Uh, one major study is from uh, the book I always love to quote, The Pursuit of Happiness. Uh, people, you know, they did a study of rich people, middle class people, poor people. None of them are more happy than the other. Actually, I think rich people, if anything, are a little less happy. <laughs> uh, so, and actually money does not bring happiness. It certainly will bring you a temporary happiness, temporary joy. Uh, if you inherited a certain amount of money, you'd be happy for a month or two months or three months or six months or whatever uh, as you think about it. But eventually, all your problems in life will come back to exactly what they are. Like what one author says, if you're not content with what you have right now, then even if you got what you want, you would not be content with that either. Paul says, I've learned the secret, one of the secrets of the Christian life, to be content with whatever I've had. I know what it's like to have much. I know what it's like to have little. And in all things, I'm content. To, to take a minute to recognize the blessings that God has already given you. <laughs> to, to look around you. To think about your family. To think about your church family. To think about the way he has provided and protected you and led you to this moment, to this day. To think about all the blessings of the gospel that you are redeemed in Christ through faith in him. That you're adopted as his son or his daughter. That you're reconciled into a relationship with him. That you're given the hope of eternal life and that nothing in this world or in the next could take that away from you. The more you begin to count your blessings and consider carefully all that the Lord has provided, the more you grow content and grateful and joyful. Dave Ramsey, actually, he's the money guy, right? He's the Financial Peace University guy. He says this is the real secret to, the secret financial principle, contentment. Uh, think about it. He says here, food and clothing is all you really need. Imagine you have a, a, just a picture in your mind, an, an old miserly woman. Got her big, huge Victorian house. Her family is basically has nothing to do with her. They don't come to visit her. She has no friends with her neighbors, not involved in any sort of uh, groups or volunteer organizations, but she sits there at home with all of her wealth, miserably. And then imagine, on the other hand, you have a, a young backpacking woman who is traveling throughout Europe and Asia with nothing but enough money each day for food and the clothing on her back, joyfully meeting new people, experiencing new things, making new friends. Which one's really more happy? Uh, money didn't lead to happiness. Contentment with food and clothing is what led to real happiness. Friends, as we as a church, are, are we content? Uh, are we living in the now? I mean, here's the problem. We, we tend to always want to live in the future, what we can get next. We do this with the seasons, don't we? Uh, we had some beautiful 80-degree weather days. How many people like the heat? All right, well, about half, about half of us really like the heat. It's a beautiful day to make you think of the summer, right? Oh, the summer is coming. I can't wait for the summer. I'm going to go lay out on the beach. I'm going to go take the trip, a vacation here and there. You know, you can't wait for the summer. And then sometimes when the summer comes, you say, I can't wait for the fall. Isn't that going to be so great when we can sit around the fire in the cool air? No more of these bugs and mosquitoes all over us. And then the leaves change in color. It's going to be beautiful. And then we hit the fall. We say, Christmas is almost here. 
You know, oh, a few more months and we're going to have that Christmas celebration. And the beautiful snowfall. We'll have a white Christmas. I think we had a white Christmas this last year, right? That only happens every so often. And then by the end of it, you're saying, I'm tired of this winter. I can't wait to next spring. <laughs> we're always looking for the next thing. Never taking a minute to say, Lord, you have been so kind and so gracious and so good and provided for us so well. I'm content with what I have here. Yes, I set goals and I plan and all that, but I'm content with all that you have provided us. There's a little study that was done. Next quote here. Uh, in another experiment, adults rated their happiness level in the morning. Uh, they were then handed an envelope containing either $5 or $20. Uh, the recipients of the envelopes were given one or two of two instructions for the day. Instructions to either spend the money on themselves or instructions to spend it on others. What do you think the results were? Each of the adults did as they were instructed. Later that evening, the envelope recipients were given a call and asked once again to rate their happiness level. The result, those who spent their money on others were happier than those who spent it on themselves. There's a certain joy that comes with generosity, with being thankful for what you have and then using it to help and to serve others. Contentment is a powerful blessing for Christians. In verses 9 and 10, he talks about the love of money, which comes with a deadly snare. The love of money, which comes with a deadly snare. Look at verse 9. But, uh, excuse me, verse yeah, 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. And I think that Paul is telling this to Timothy, not only so that it wouldn't be a temptation for Timothy himself, uh, but more importantly, that he is reminding the people in his very congregation of this important teaching. Those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation. He calls it here a snare, a trap. They fall into senseless and harmful desires. And listen to the language here. That plunge people. To plunge is to fall deeply into something. <laughs> to be plunged. Plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Oftentimes misquoted verse. Uh, money is not the root of all evil. Uh, love of money is not the root of all evil. Uh, love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. <laughs> Don't leave out any of the words there. Uh, it's our love of money that's the problem, or that leads to the problem. And it's not the root of all evils. There are plenty of other evils besides that that, that that come from money. But it does lead to all different types, all different kinds of evil. And that craving, that love that for money has caused many, he says here, to wander away from the faith. And as he describes it, to pierce themselves with many pains. Friends, all of us know someone, if you're not someone yourself, uh, who has gone down this path of the love of money and made that the whole purpose and the pursuit of their existence in this world and have found ruin on the other side. It's a, it's a common trap. Jesus often spoke about it too. You can't serve two masters, God and money. Money is a very common idol. He talked about the seed that's thrown among the thorns and what chokes it out and kills it, the deceitfulness of wealth. That was great. He didn't say the wealth. It's, it's deceit. There's a lie that comes when it comes to money. And that is that it brings happiness. That it's the purpose of our existence. And he says in the end that leads to destruction. Now, there are plenty of different snares in this life. I mean, there's, it's not the only snare, as I said. There are snares that come with sexual sin. Uh, there are snares that come with slander and being brought into that world of gossip. Uh, there are all different types of snares, but this is a common one. That has led many people to destruction. Self-preservation itself, friends, would tell you, be careful, guard your heart. 
Don't let your life become all about your money and your resources and what you've been able to accumulate. God calls us to live for something far bigger, far better, far greater than that. He calls us to live for Him as people made in the image of God, called to worship and to know and to enjoy a relationship with Him. And at the end of the day, it all goes back in the box. The story of, uh, that John Ortberg tells, uh, he loved to play his grandma in Monopoly. And uh, for all the time, his grandma would always beat him, every, every time, you know, so I like that. I don't like parents who let their kids win too much. You gotta, you gotta teach them how to lose sometimes too, right? So she would beat him every time. Until he reached, finally reached a certain age, let's say, I don't know, 13, whatever. He played his grandma, and he finally beat her in Monopoly. Uh, and I think legit beat her, not because she let him win. She, he actually beat his grandmother in Monopoly. He said, finally, grandma, I finally beat you. And she said, well, son, a grandson, it all goes back in the box. <laughs> At the end of the day, there's no money, there's no real gain. Put it all back in the box. And he reminds him here, reminds us here, friends, at the end of this life, now how, much, how much money you've gained, how many possessions you've accumulated, it all goes back in the box. You don't take anything with you. Have you avoided the snare to let money become your life? Have you avoided the snare that it becomes taken over the purpose of your life and instead lived as a steward for the Lord? As we think about our church and as we plan for the future, we're trusting the Lord. And as we've been saying in our stewardship videos and so forth, it takes resources to do ministry. Um, uh, R.C. Sproul once asked Bill Hybels, he said, you know how much ministry you can do for $100? And Bill Hybels said to R.C. Sproul, I have no idea how much ministry you can do for $100. And Sproul said, about $100 worth. That was his answer. So it does take resources to do ministry. I mean, you don't necessarily need it. You can go talk to someone about Jesus right now. It won't cost you a dime. But if we want to send missionaries and fund ministries and hire staff and reach our youth and young adults and all that's going to take resources, we're trusting the Lord for the faithfulness and generosity of, his, of this church family and for his sometimes often supernatural provision for us as we look to be good stewards of all that he's given us. A Jesus-centered family, a Jesus-centered community seeks to have Jesus-centered stewardship. Would you pray with me? Well, our gracious Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness to us as a church. We look back over, again, the long history that we've been able to, to enjoy as a church um, that goes back multiple generations, even before the Civil War, even before the Revolutionary War, even before this country was a nation. We look back and even see John Hancock's John Hancock on our charter, uh, that Governor Hancock signed the very charter of this church. And we've seen, Lord, that through ups and downs, through difficult times and good times, you have faithfully provided and faithfully sustained this church time and time again. And so, Lord, even as we come to you, looking to you as a church family and thinking about the future, this is the day of our annual meeting, we look to you and trust you going forward, looking to do great things for your name. But, Lord, we think of all how a church is made up of all individuals, and all of us have our own issues, Lord, our own struggles, our own temptations that we're dealing with when it comes to the finances and so forth. Help us to trust you. Help us to be cautious not to fall off the horse in either direction. Uh, not to let money become more important than it really is, and nor to see it as an evil, uh, as something bad, but to see it instead, instead as a stewardship that you've entrusted us to use for your glory. 
So help us, Lord, to be faithful in this area, even as we're seeking to be faithful in all different areas of our church ministry, and to trust your provision going forward. Thank you for your goodness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.